the Oak Point West Bloomfield podcast. We're a community of people who keep it real and believe that the gospel is such good news, and we hope we can encourage you along the way as we pursue Jesus together. Point Church West Bloomfield. My name is Joe Seastan, the lead pastor here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. It's really great to have you here today with us. We're in a series in the book of Romans called Forgiven because the greatest truth is that those who are uh, have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. As the song we just sang talked about that all of those failures, they absolutely disappear at the cross of Christ, that you're forgiven if you're in Christ. Last week, we talked about from Romans chapter four, how there are several facets of our righteousness, that when God sees those who are in Christ, he sees you perfect and righteous. And I loved the part about the promises of God. I love the part about how it went through Abraham, <clears throat> Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham. And the reality is that Jesus was willing to be cut off as if, if, if he would ever fail on his promises, he was willing to be cut off, God to be cut off, but he didn't. Jesus is perfect. He's perfectly good on his promises. But the reality is that Jesus was also willing to be cut off if we didn't keep our promises. And he was. At the cross, the perfect one took on the curse. At the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus was cut off for us so that we could experience the righteousness of God. It's a great aspect of the reality that we are forgiven through the cross of Christ. Today, we're going to talk about the topic of boasting, about bragging on yourself or someone else. And boasting, what it does is it really brings, it brings focus to a subject. When you start to talk about something, it brings it brings intense focus to it. And, um, you know, Christians, we, there are times when we are to boast, but oftentimes the way that it works is that we boast in ourselves. Case in point, our first church road rally a couple of months ago, uh, a little clap if you participated, who, who participated? All right. A few of us. Sorry. So when I first heard that we were going to do a road rally for the church and Kristen Williams was organizing it, I have to tell you, my mind immediately went to how am, how am I going to assemble a team that's going to absolutely dominate this thing? So I, I found the engineers of the group. I found the, the guy who goes up and does home inspections and knows how to like enter, you know, into weird spots of a home to find things. And so I assembled this team of uh, Peter Dembski, uh, Jim Stinson, and Jeff Ferguson with myself. And uh, I was like, we're going to crush the competition here. So I, uh, I started to prepare for the road rally. The day of, I, um, I, I offered to drive the team. I was the team captain. I took the doors off of my Jeep that day because I wanted us to have really uh, quick, you know, dismount and like enter back into the car, like seatbelts optional type of thing. Uh, and, and I was the whole morning because my wife Renee was on a different team with some ladies. I was like talking so much trash to her. I was like, I started to like feel bad for her. I was like, you know, you, you guys are really going to struggle. And so here's how it went. Like Kristen had us all come together at Gino's restaurant, gave us the instructions, gave us this huge long list of like a hundred different items with different point values to go out and find. And um, our team 
was focused. I mean, when we went to a spot, we knew exactly who was gonna do what, what pictures we were gonna take because we had to like show photographic evidence that we saw our item on the scavenger hunt. We were efficient. We were we were jumping out of that car. We were taking selfies from within the car. We were like, uh, at one stop, we would hit like four or five items. And we were crafty. I mean, like it said helicopter. It said like you had to go find a helicopter, but there was no fine print that said it had to be an actual helicopter. So we would go to Walmart and grab a little toy helicopter and take a picture of ourselves as a little toy helicopter. We were crafty. And in the height of our glory, um, <laughs> Um, we started to, we started to sympathize like for the rest of the competition. We were like in one person, it wasn't me. Uh, one of my teammates said this statement, you know, I feel so bad for our wives. They're probably taking this list so literally that they're wasting a ton of time. Meanwhile, we're taking pictures of like toy orange sports cars versus the real thing. So um, we had three hours to complete the road rally and the very final task was that you had to print out all of your pictures to show evidence that you, um, that you actually got the things that you went out to go get. And um, that's where it fell apart for us. <laughs> we went to uh, Walmart and the printer was down. We went to CVS and the printer was down. We went to Rite Aid and the printer was down. And we needed to get back on time or else we start losing massive points. And by this point where we've spent an hour on the picture taking process and we have no pictures to show for it. So I make the all dreaded text to my wife as we're parked at Rite Aid. And I said, hey, are you having any troubles printing your pictures? We seem to have some problems. And then she sent me the note back oh, you're having problems. And then she sent me the GIF, which was like Jim Carrey from Ace Ventura. It's like, loser, you know? And I looked at the guys, I was like, oh, we are not gonna hear the end of this. Within 30 seconds, my own son, Sebastian, who was part of the Gerons team, their team name was the Geronimals. Uh, he calls me within 30 seconds. He's like, so dad, you're having a hard time, I heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's not looking good. He's like, oh, by the way, you lost. <laughs> and so we walk in a half an hour late after everybody's scarfing down pizza and we do the walk of shame. And here's the whole point of all that. If you start boasting in yourself, you better make sure that you're gonna come through on your promises or else the boasting turns to absolute blasting on you. And that's what happened for us. The problem is that boasting, it really backfires when the subject, in this case, us with the road rally doesn't come through. We're gonna look at why it's good for us to boast of God today. And I wanna show you a few reasons why it's good to boast of God. We're gonna go to Romans chapter five, the first 11 verses. I'm gonna start off with uh, the first couple of verses. And the, and the reason why it's okay to boast with, of God is that God allows you to commune with him. Verses one and two of chapter five in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I'm reading from the NIV today, which is different than what I typically read from. And the reason is because I really like the translation that it gives um, for this idea of to boast. Uh, it uses the word boast here two out of the three times. Three times we'll see the same Greek word about boasting. Some translations might say rejoice um, and others might uh, say a different word. But the idea here is that um, we have been justified with God and it's, it says that we can boast uh, in the hope of the glory of God. And the reason why is because we can now commune with God. We can commune with God. It brings up two very important words here. Verse one, it says, one reason that we can commune with God is because we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word peace, this is uh, the language this is written in is Greek, but the word peace is a very prevalent word in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. And in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. And it appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. And shalom, peace, that's saying here, is not the type of transactional peace where it's like free of strife and, and being in a time of peace and not war. It's not just that. The peace that it's referencing here that we have with God goes far deeper than that. It's the type of peace that's fullness with God, in fullness in your life. It's the type of peace that is completeness in your life. It's the type of peace that when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's that type of peace where it's like you can have rest for your soul. No dollar amount of money that you could make could buy that type of peace. And what it says is that through Jesus, we now get to have peace with God. Now, throughout the whole Old Testament, the people of God were, were constantly at battle with God. They, they, would, they would do things in their rebellion and sin against God to make it so that they didn't have peace. They always had the condemnation of sin from the law of Moses hanging over their head as, as we've seen over and over again. Now, I want you to realize something here. It talks about having in verse five that we get to boast in the hope of the glory of God. It says that in verse one, that we have peace with God. So it is God who gives us our peace, but I want you to realize something else too. God is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Isaiah 9, 6, it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And then in Judges 6, 24, it talks about um, Yahweh Shalom, or the Lord is peace. Jesus is our peace. And so I don't know about you, but do you ever struggle having peace with other human beings in this life? <laughs> do you ever struggle um, with relationships where you feel like you're at odds with somebody in this life? I do too. And I want you to realize a very important thing here. <clears throat> if you're ever gonna have peace with another human being in this world, 
you have to first have peace with God in this world. It is not possible to have true shalom, true completeness, true fullness, true rest for your soul with another human being until you first have shalom with God Almighty. And so I don't know where you're at today. Uh, toward the end of service, we're going to be taking communion. It's a great chance to see where you're at with the shalom of God, to see how you are in your peace with God. Because if you want peace in this world, if you want completeness, you must first approach God and have peace, the shalom that he offers you through Christ. So we can commune with God. We can commune with him because we have peace with him now through Christ. But we also have this other thing in verse two. It says, through whom we have now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We, we not only have peace with God, we also now have access to God, which means that we can go directly to him. We don't have to go through an intermediary. We don't have to uh, have God as this distant God anymore. You know, one of the great attributes of God is that he's an imminent God. What imminence means is that he's not only above all, which is transcendence, it's sort of goes hand in hand with imminence. He's not only above all sovereign and ruling, he's an imminent God, which means that he is in touch with his creation. He's checked into your life. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought that you think. He is close to you. Jesus came to the earth. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He is with us, God with us. He's an imminent God. And he wants us to come directly to him, to have access to him that he offers through Jesus. In the Old Testament times, having peace with God and having access to God were available, but they were hard for people to work to get. In the Old Testament times, under the law of Moses, the closest access that a person would get to God was usually through the high priest. One time each year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, beyond the curtain that separated this most holy place from the holy place on the outside, that high priest would go in once per year. The high priest would go in with a rope tied around his ankle so that if he did not perform the ceremony properly and he was killed uh, because of an improper worship, he would be dragged out dead he went in and he was very careful with his movements. He would have his head down, not even looking at the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat. He would perform his ritualistic duty exactly as he was told, making atonement for the people for one more year, covering up their sins. And then he would very carefully exit. That high priest was the person that God appointed to stand between the people of God and God himself. Unless God was coming to a prophet with a vision, that was how God, God's access was available to the people in the Old Testament times. Because of the blood of Jesus, the once for all sufficient sacrifice, the, the blood that was spread on the mercy seat one time for all, 
What happened was that Jesus, when he died on the cross, the literal veil that separated the holy of holies from the most holy place, that that curtain that, that only the high priest could go into once per year was broken, was torn from top to bottom, symbolically showing that we now as people, human beings, have direct access to God through Jesus's sacrifice. Look, a reason why you can boast of God is because you can now commune with God through God's peace and through the access that he allows you to have because Jesus is the great high priest. Amen? Hebrews 4 says this, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the, is the um, great high priest who has given us access and peace to God through him. So are you feeling distant from God today? Are, are you feeling like, yeah, I know topically he offers peace and access, but that's not how I feel right now you can go directly to God. God is as near to you as you want him to be. The veil has been torn. We no longer are required to go through a high priest. We can go directly to one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, and we can commune directly with him. Therefore, we can boast of him. He is worthy of boasting of because he has done that for us. <clears throat> Another reason why you can boast of God is that God allows you to suffer for him. He allows you to suffer for him. Verse three. Not only so, but we also glory or boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. In hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The word glory there is the same word that's used in that previous section of boasting. It talks about how we can boast in our sufferings. And that's a very unique characteristic of the Christian walk. There are other worldviews out there that think that suffering is something that you can do that's good because it somehow fuels you to become more disciplined and have more um, characteristics of yourself grow. Christianity is different though, because we can boast or take glory or bring attention to our sufferings and God will use the sufferings to grow us. God is all about using circumstances that you're going through in this life to help you to grow, to be the person that he has crafted you to be. That word suffering is the Greek word phlebo, and it's the idea, it's a metaphor, but the actual term, it means to press 
as in to press grapes or olives to make juice or to make oil. And so the idea is that there's this pressure that goes on the crop to make this great product in the end. I want you to realize that suffering is something, it's an opportunity. We see this throughout the New Testament. You know, James talks about in, in chapter one, count it all joy when you meet trials or suffering of various kinds for the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, I want to bring attention to there's real suffering that happens in this world. And, and there are real victims of suffering. There are people who suffer from abuse, people who suffer from persecution, people who suffer from disease, people who suffer from famine and poverty and all these things. And it's right and good for us as modern day 21st century American Christians who don't tend to go through those things the same rate as other people in history or in other parts of the world have, it's right and good for us to realize that we're not really suffering like other people have or are right now. But I believe that this passage, when it talks about suffering, it's talking about it more in a general sense. And I think that that's a gateway for us today to, to bring this passage to something that matters for us right now. In my time with my counselor over the past year plus, I have learned that it's okay to admit that I'm at times suffering. Even though I'm not suffering like somebody in sub-Saharan Africa who has lost both parents and is on the street trying to fend for themselves at four years old, I'm not suffering like that or I'm not suffering like martyrs of the faith, but Often we suffer from things like uncertainty. We suffer from things like self-doubt. We suffer from things like anxiety. We suffer from things like sadness or temptation or waiting. And if you think about suffering in that sense, like things aren't going the way that I want them to, I believe that you can connect to this passage and, and have God show you something today that'll help you through that time. That's actually, actually gonna help you to grow because you're gonna be pressed by God and there will be great juice that comes out on the other side of that. So I wanna, I wanna look at this verse a little bit more. It says in verse three and four, not only so, we glory in our sufferings because we, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. I want to demonstrate with a whiteboard. Put on my, put on my teacher hat for you all today, uh, if you'll amuse me a little bit. And we'll just draw this up here because I'm an engineer and I like to think in terms of process maps and decision trees. That's what I'm going to kind of draw up here. It talks about how suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. I like to think about it like this. So you've got this first process step and it says suffering. And it says that suffering through God, not on our own strength, through working within the way that God wants to press you, allow you to go through that trial, suffering, can you guys see this at all? Yeah, all right, good, suffering, produces, that's my arrow for produces. Hopefully I have enough room here. Suffering produces persevere, oh gosh, A-N-C-E, right? 
Is that right? Yeah. Perseverance. All right, that's a big word. The perseverance is like, you can substitute that word with like another word called endurance or another word of like patience. Patience is another form of perseverance. Okay, so perseverance is kind of like hanging in there. <laughs> like you're suffering, you're being pressed right now with your circumstances. Are you hanging in there? Are you being patient? God is doing something in you. Suffering produces perseverance it says that perseverance produces character, all right? And it says then that character then, good, I have enough room. Character produces hope. And I love a good flow chart in the Bible. And that's really what this is. It's a flow chart with the decision tree of it. I wanna show you this. You start with this first question. Are you suffering? It's a yes, no question. Are you suffering? Are you suffering from having to wait? Are you suffering from uncertainty? Are you suffering from anxiety? Are you suffering from temptation? Are you suffering from sadness? Kind of like in this general sense. If the question is, if the answer is yes, go on to step two. <laughs> Are you persevering? Oh, now here's where it gets tough. Because oftentimes, if you're anything like me, I, I resist against this step. God wants me to persevere through the suffering, but often I don't do that. I, I take different approaches. I start to white knuckle it. I like micromanage it. I, I work harder or I give up. I do one of those things. Are you hanging in there with patience, with endurance? So it's another yes, no question. Now, if the answer is no, If it's no, that just means, it doesn't mean you're in trouble with God. It doesn't mean that God hates you. It doesn't mean that God's got it out for you. It doesn't mean that God's not coming through. It means that God is still doing a work likely in you. He's still got some pressing that he's allowing you to go through so that you can, he can have really good juice come out of what he's doing with you. So he's gonna let you continue likely to go through this period of suffering some more. That's an attribute of God. That's an attribute of God that he's imminent with you. He's there with you. He wants you to depend on him more through the suffering. That's another word that we could put here is depend on God or depend. If you're having a hard time depending on God, he wants you to stay here. He doesn't want you just to move past this and miss an opportunity to grow during your time of waiting and endurance and perseverance and depending on him. But if it's a yes, then it comes over to this next one. Are, are you, it talks about building character. Now, I want you to realize the word character here, it means literally that heat is applied to metal, stripping away the dross or the impurities and leaving the precious metal as in gold, as in silver. That's what the word for character means. So what God wants to do is he's going to allow uh, he's going to allow pressing to occur to give you a chance to depend and patiently endure, persevere, so that what's left over is this beautiful uh, character that he wants to build in you. So you're like precious metal to him through this process. So we have another yes, no question here. If we don't, if we aren't building character through the perseverance, it's going to come right back to this one again. 
that he's going to have you continue to endure and, and have patience and depend. But if you are building character, then you can experience true hope. The hope that comes through in verse five, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to bring you hope. It fills in your hearts. God's love filling in your heart to give you the true hope. That's not like um, some substitute hope that the world offers. It's not some transient hope. It's actual hope of what happens as you go through the trial, as you go through the suffering. So look, I've been going through, and if you if you, if that's a no, you're gonna come back over here, the character. I've been going through this. Like I've experienced a, a time of suffering, um, a couple of things going on right now. Uh, often, I don't do it this way. Often, I feel this, and I start to give up very quickly, or I, I micromanage. Recently, though, there was an experience that I had where I had an opportunity from God to suffer. And just speaking more like in the general sense, I had an opportunity to suffer. And I went through this process like this. The situation was about um, four months ago, I was told by my employer outside the church, I, I do work outside the church. Um, I call it tent making work. I love doing it. And uh, I was told that my job was very uncertain, that I could lose my job very quickly. So I went into a period of suffering. And the suffering I was experienced in a general sense was uncertainty. Now, just a little bit, I'll open up the hood to our family just a little bit. And I'm not looking for any sympathy. I'm not looking for anything other than just understanding kind of our scenario. We have a large family, a lot of kids, many needs, uh, therapy needs, schooling needs. And because we have such a large family, the way that God has allowed us to operate is that in order to provide time for our family and money for our family, Renee is the one that gets to stay at home. Uh, and I, I, we, that's the way that God has allowed us to operate our home. I'm so thankful. But what happens is that I'm then the one that God has entrusted to make the money to pay for our family. So I've been able to work outside the church for a while. And my job is to sort of be responsible there to help to, to pay for things and keep first things first, tithing, uh, giving and uh, saving and paying down debt and all that good stuff. But it takes a lot to do that. It takes a lot of income to do that. And so when I first heard then that we were gonna be having an uncertain situation for my work and I was gonna go through this period of suffering, I was talking with my counselor and chose to not do what I would typically do. What I would typically do would be ratchet up the meetings. Like I got, I got to have like 10 times more meetings, um, work out the stress, like just start to stress about this whole thing and white knuckle it and figure out what I'm going to do to get through it. I didn't do that this time. What I did instead is I went to the season of perseverance. And here's what it tangibly looked like for me. This is what God laid on my heart. I started to write out contingencies. I listed out things that if the worst thing happened and I lost my job right now, what would be the possible things that we would have to give up in life to make things work? I listed all of those things out. I had a meeting with my beautiful wife, Renee. We walked through those contingencies together. And then in this time of perseverance, we, we committed it to prayer. Now, I'll tell you something very powerful that happens when you're in these scenarios. I put on a prayer board 
about five or six contingencies of things that we would do if God had us do it because we lost my job. And then I left one big space off to the right that said, or God, anything else that you want to show us. And then what Renee and I did is we submitted that before the Lord. We took our hands off of it. And we said, God, whatever you want to do, please just show us. We put the contingency out there along with a big space for him to do whatever he wants to do. And we let him then take over. You want to know what happens when you do that? The pressure comes off your own shoulders. God allows you then to remove yourself, let him do his work so that you can go on to start to build character. The character that was being built up in me during that time was a character of peace a character of dependence, a character of knowing it's all going to be okay. We're, we're going to get through this, that God is doing something good, which led to true hope. That situation is not all the way resolved. It's not resolved. And I've had two or three that have cropped up since then. And, and a couple, I haven't gone this pattern. But I'll tell you, the hope that I have is far different now than I've ever experienced because going through this Romans chapter five, verse three and through five method has been very helpful for me to do it the way that God wants us to do things. So what could that do for you then? If you were to decide instead of going through things the way that you would typically do it, what would, what would change if you chose to go through like this? And I guess a better question is, if God is working in you by, by, by allowing you to be pressed, how can you situate yourself today to align yourself more to God? Instead of going it alone, apart from God, how can you press in? If he's going to allow you to be pressed, how can you lean into God more and align yourself to him so that he can produce good fruit in you? The outcome of what he wants to do in you through this time of trial that you're going through is probably way more than what you think the best outcome could be. If you write down on paper, I would love this thing to happen. I bet you God is wanting to do even more in you through this time than that. How can you situate yourself in a way that you will um, be cooperative with the Holy Spirit to do that work in your life? Those are reasons, friends, to boast in God. We can boast in him because of the communion we get to have with him. We can boast of God because of the suffering that he allows us to go through in this life. And then finally, we can boast of God because God allows you to reconcile to him. Verse 6 through 11 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though through a, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We talked about this a lot in chapters one and two. And here again, we see it again. 
just in case we've forgotten, all we bring to the table with God in our humanity is our depravity. It, it talks in verse 6 that we were powerless. And also in verse 6 that we were ungodly. In verse 8, it talks about how we were still sinners. And then in verse 10, it says that we were enemies of God. Guys, we are powerless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. All we've brought to the table to show God before we are converted through Christ is absolute depravity. Nothing deserved, nothing in us deserved the reconciliation of God. And I want you to realize something about God. God isn't just the cheerleader on the sidelines that's given the clap for the opposing team as if you're the enemy, but he's kind of like really just sort of pulling for you. He's not just the cheerleader on the side. No, we were hostile toward God. And at that time where we were hostile toward him, Jesus died for us. Jesus gave up his life in love for us when we were enemies of God. At the cross, the perfect one took on sin when we were enemies. You know, this idea of dying in the place of somebody else, logically, just take Christianity and a biblical worldview off the table for a minute. It's very, very rare in life to experience a story of somebody who would lay down their life for somebody else. Usually when that happens, there's either a great family relationship that's the backdrop or it's a mission of some sort. For instance, it's that loved one that needs that organ transplant and you offer up yours and then somehow in the complications, you die. Or it's that child of yours that's about to get hit by the bus and you step in front instead and take one for them. Or it's like the armed forces because of their mission to protect and serve or, or um, police, fire, they'll step in harm's way to protect somebody else. We can wrap our brains around these types of concepts from a logic standpoint, standpoint of why somebody might do that. But it's impossible. It's so mysterious to understand why the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, would obediently become the curse and take on sin and die for us at the cross. That is unimaginable. May it never lose its power over our minds. May it never take away the burden in our hearts to know what Jesus did for us while we were yet enemies of him when he died on that cross. It says in verse 11 and before that, that we have now received reconciliation. The idea of reconciliation is the idea of, um, again, making friends with us. Consulier, I think that's how you say that word, is the from reconciliation, is the idea of making friends, making friendly again. It goes all the way back, and then re, the R-E is again. So it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to, in the garden, things were perfect, 
It was an optimal situation between God and humanity. They were friends. God would walk alongside Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He would commune with them. He would talk with them. Things were perfect. And then because of sin entering into the world through Eve's sin that Adam condones, it says that death came through sin. We'll see that next week. Death came through sin. There's a separation between human beings and God. There was enmity between them. So we needed something. There was a difference that needed to be made back up again, reconciled. Jesus is the one who made friends again for us through the cross. So his death in his resurrection was the obedient act of faith that allowed us to be made friends again with God through his sacrifice to be reconciled. There was a difference to settle and Jesus settled it for us on the cross so that we now could be back to that same righteous standard that he saw when he looked at Adam and Eve before their sin in the garden. We can boast of God. As the band comes back up and as the communion elements uh, begin getting passed out, the bottom line is that when we boast of God, God is magnified. God is made bigger. God is made greater when we boast of him. To magnify something is to bring intense focus to something that is very distant, to bring intense focus to that thing or that object or that person as if he is right here with us. When we boast of God, when we speak of God's uh, ability to commune with us and that he allows us to suffer and that he's reconciled us, it brings God close to us. It's like we magnify him in our lives because what happened is that God sent his very son, Jesus, to live the perfect life, the life that we couldn't, to die obediently on the cross. And at the cross, he offered reconciliation. Thanks, Max. He offered reconciliation for us, for any who would say yes to him and trust in him as Lord. Jesus died, was buried, And then Jesus rose again from the grave, showing true hope, showing the hope that you can't get from this world. And Jesus said that he's going to return again soon. We await that. We await his coming back. And we can boast in God because of that. Look, perhaps today for you, you've never experienced the reconciliation of God. And today I want you to know that that is possible. Any day that is possible. And if today maybe God is prompting you to turn to Jesus to receive the reconciliation that he offers, I'll offer a time for you to do that here in just a moment. For the rest of us who are Christians, my question for you is, how will you boast? We have Thanksgiving coming up this next week. It's a great time to reflect on the past year of thanks. What a wonderful time to boast of God. What a wonderful time to take the attention off of our doings, of who we are, and to instead magnify the Lord for all that he has done. How will you boast this Thanksgiving coming up? We're going to enter now into a time of communion, and then I'll um, likely be uh, inviting you to respond to the gospel. Um, I want to set up communion this way. You know, the Bible, I was reading just... uh, this morning I was reminded of it actually yesterday. The Bible um, talks about the proper way to take uh, communion. And I want you to hear these words. It says, 
so then in First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-seven. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So before you even open this, God is calling us to examine where our hearts are with him, especially our doing things against his will. There is a warning here. And here it is translated for all of us in this room today. If you are living in sin right now and you have every intention of walking out that door and continuing to live in your sin, it's warning you, don't take the cup or the bread today. This is God speaking to you. This is a serious matter. And if we have every intention to live out our sin after we walk out those doors and look, we all sin, I'm talking about the real blatant ones, the ones that are creating friction between you and God, that you are twisting the Bible to make it seem like it's okay for what you're doing right now. Don't take the bread and the juice. Or if you do, reconcile to God first. Use this moment to come close to him. And another thing with communion, this is for believers. If you haven't trusted in Jesus before, this isn't for you today. This is meant to represent our trust that Jesus's body was given up on the cross for ours, that Jesus's blood poured over and washed over our sins to make us righteous. And so only take this if you believe that to be true for you. On the night of Jesus's betrayal, he took the bread. He thanked God. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Before we take and eat, I just want to offer a moment for you to reconcile to God. Realize that in Christ, you have peace and access with him. Maybe you have been living in sin, but make this a moment for yourself to come close to him and receive the access he's given you. And when you're ready, Take the bread. At the end of the supper, Jesus took the cup filled with wine he thanked God and praised God and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and drink. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenants for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we take of the juice today, we remember how Jesus shed his blood on the cross, a life for a life so that we could have peace with God. Would you stand up and bow your heads for prayer? God allows you to commune with him. He offers that peace, that shalom in your life. Imagine the value of shalom in your life. 
of, of having fullness, of having completeness, of having rest, of having a quiet soul. And maybe that just speaks volumes to what you're going through right now, that you would give anything to have the peace, the shalom of God this morning. And if that's something that you are asking God for right now, would you raise your hand? God allows us to suffer for him. Maybe that's a new concept for you. It's this idea of flebo, where we're being pressed like grapes. And, it, and it's hard for you with what you're going through right now. You are suffering, maybe not like poverty, maybe not like persecution to the martyr stake, but you're suffering from something right now. Maybe it's anxiety or waiting. And it's hard right now. And yet you want to do it the way that God has called you to do it. You want to suffer and then persevere this time to produce character and hope. And if that's you, would you raise your hand? See you guys. God allows you to reconcile to him. Is there somebody in this room today that needs to reconcile to Jesus for the very first time? to turn to the Lord Christ as your anchor, your stronghold, your firm foundation, the solid rock on which you stand. Is there somebody that today for the very first time needs to be reconciled to God through Jesus? If that's you, would you raise your hand? God, we thank you that we can boast of you, God. You are worthy. You are so worthy. God, as, we, as we've drank the juice, which represents wine and, and eating the bread, Lord, we remember the way that that juice or wine is made. It's made through pressing. And God, as we sing this last song, it reminds us the, the new wine, the new blessing that you have placed in our hearts. God, your, your word says that you don't make new wine with old wineskins. Translation for us, we don't bring our old self into this new creation that you've allowed us to be. So Lord, would you make beautiful, wonderful new wine out of us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.